0: My name is Jerry. I'm the campus pastor here in Carmel. We're glad to have all of you with us uh, today. Uh, There's an old saying that goes something like this, familiarity breeds contempt. You've probably heard it before, right? I bet you've even experienced it. Think about your smartphone. The first time we we discovered smartphones, we were told that they're going to make our lives easier and better. And I don't know about you, after several variations of smartphones, I kind of wonder if they make life easier, if they just complicate things, right? Because I'm always staring at it. And It has something, it's always telling me where to go and what to do next, right? Just familiarity can kind of breed contempt. Maybe you've experienced this with a friend. You needed a roommate, so you invited a friend to lo- live with you because you get along and that should work out well, right? Or you go to work with a friend, that should, that'd be even better. And after a few weeks or months, not so much, right? You just can't stand each other. That's, that's one of the truths in life. Familiarity can breed contempt. However, it can also breed indifference. We just, we're just we around something so much, we just get used to it. We take it for granted. We see this with couples, right? You, you're, you take such good care of one another when you're dating, but five years into marriage, is it not easy to just start taking people for granted? Or maybe you've, you've done this, or you know somebody that's done this. They've bought the, their brand new car or their dream home, and they love it. They want to show you it. And they want to tell you all about it. But then as the newness wears off, what happens? It just becomes a really expensive payment and it's, it's like, oh, I'm just ready to move on to the next thing because we get so familiar with things that we think we really want or need. And, and that's true with a lot of areas in life. And it can also be true with the Christmas story, right? We, we hear these familiar passages and prophecies every, every year And we hear, you know, like there's child's going to be born or a child has been born that's going to change everything. And we kind of nod our heads and shrug our shoulders because we know it's silent night and away in the manger and all that jazz. We know the drill, right? But if you've noticed, this year's just a little different. There is an air of excitement in the world around us. And it's bringing to life this prophecy, this familiar prophecy that says, for to us a child is born and unto us a son is born is given. And you've you've probably seen this or experienced this, you know, on social media, right? Because there are some people that are really geeking out about the arrival of a long-awaited son, (laughs) baby Yoda, right? And to those of you Star Wars nerds, this is the way. You know what that means, right? Now, if you don't, if you don't know what the green little baby is about, you're probably thinking, what in the world? You just have more of a life than some of the rest of us, okay? And, And good for you. That's a good thing. On a serious note, though, have you noticed have you noticed how easy it is for us to become so familiar with the Christmas story that we start to miss out on its true meaning altogether? And not only we miss out on the meaning of it, we, we forget how to apply it to our lives. We, we decorate our homes, we listen to Christmas music, we get all kind of excited, but if you're like me, the chaos of the season quickly overrides the reason for the season. And instead, celebration and thankfulness are quickly replaced with frustration and chaos. I mean, it's a busy time of the year, right? And somebody had the great idea of, hey, this should also be the time when we should pick our healthcare plans, right? And there's nothing else going on right now, right? There's nothing else that we have to worry about. So there's that kind of stress. There's changes and stressors at work that keep us guessing about our future and what might happen next. There's the overwhelming pace of keeping up with kids and sports and school, and it's it's just wearing us down. There's anxiety. And sadness over relationships that have ended. Maybe you lost a loved one or relationships going up in flames and it's just a hard time of the year. There's health issues that keep us guessing what's going to happen next. Or there's a nagging sense of loneliness that causes us to feel isolated this time of the year. And I don't know about you, but surely this isn't the way we're supposed to feel when it comes to Christmas. Surely there's more to it than this, right? Well, today we're continuing in this series called Waiting for Christmas, and for the last few weeks, we've been trying to take a fresh look at the Christmas story by revisiting some prophecies and promises that God gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And these prophecies, they were, they were sent by God in order to help the Israelites anticipate a day that we now know was Christmas. They didn't know they were waiting for Christmas. But these prophecies point to Christmas Day, that first Christmas event. And this week, we're going to look at a promise that God made to a man named Isaiah. We're going to look at it in just a second. But I want to warn you, it's really familiar. It has everything to do with Christmas. You've probably heard it before. You might be able to recite it. And that's not a bad thing. But the problem is we get so familiar with it. We forget to celebrate what it's actually telling us. We forget to apply it to our lives, and we just kind of move on and run past it. Now, this particular um, uh, prophecy is found in Isaiah chapter 9. It was written 700 years before the first Christmas ever happened. And this is what it says, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And just to be clear, God is not talking about Baby Yoda in 2019. If you know the story, you know the Son, right? This is Jesus, the arrival of the Savior and the Messiah, born as God and man into our world, sent to rescue humanity from the penalty of our sins and to restore creation back to its original state. It's it's a storyline that we're all probably familiar with. And that's a good thing, as long as it doesn't some become so familiar that we forget why we celebrate in the first place. And so today what I want to do is I want us to take a look at this prophecy in its historical context. What was going on in Israel that God would have given this promise? What did it mean for those people, and what does it mean for us today? So if you want to follow along, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. You can flip there on your phone if you want, or in the Bibles around the room, that's on page 477. Maybe you've never read Isaiah before, maybe you've heard some of these passages quoted, but we'll have all the verses that you need on the screen, but I want you to listen to these powerful ancient words and think about what they mean for us. Because here's the thing, at this particular point in Israel's history, things were a little rocky, they were uncertain, there was a lot of fear. For starters, the once mighty kingdom of Israel had been one united nation, but now it separated into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and they were fighting against one another. There was like a civil war going on among the people. And as if that wasn't bad enough, there were rumors circulating throughout the region that the mighty and powerful Assyrian Empire was on the move and they were conquering the neighbors of Israel and they had their sights set on the people of Israel next. Now I want you to take a moment and imagine what it would be like to live in that kingdom, in one of those kingdoms in those days. Imagine the sadness of knowing that your native people, basically one large family, is now separated. You're not a mighty nation anymore. You're separated into two, and there's fighting. Imagine the political tension and the bickering on both sides of the aisle. Now, both of those sound like modern-day America, right? We don't have to try hard to imagine those things, but I want you to imagine this. Imagine the fear of hearing reports that the Assyrians were coming. Your neighbors are being conquered. Or imagine the anxiety of, of thinking, we, we're going to be next. I, I'm pretty sure they're coming for us. And eventually that's exactly what happened. The Assyrians came and they conquered the northern kingdom. When I say conquered, they wiped them out completely, wiped them off the map. Now that, for some reason, did not happen to the southern kingdom. Somehow the southern kingdom survived under a long string of kings, and one of those kings was a man named King Uzziah. And you might be like me and not know much about King Uzziah. Here's what you need to know about Uzziah. He ruled and reigned in the southern kingdom for over 50 years. He was popular. He was famous. His fame had spread throughout the region, and the southern kingdom enjoyed a time of prosperity under his rule. And things were good in the southern kingdom until he died. And on the day he died, there was a lot of panic. People were wondering, what's going to happen next? and They were asking the question, what do we do now? Like the Assyrians are knocking on our door. What do we do? Now, it might be hard for us to grasp what that kind of anxiety would be like. Some of you probably remember, I was not alive in the 60s, but if you were when President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed, I'm going to imagine that it, it brought a lot of anxiety into our country, right? Or better yet, I can give you a couple of dates in the not-so-recent past or the recent past that, that will bring up some emotions for you, like September 11th, 2001. It was a Tuesday. If you're old enough, you probably know exactly where you were for the whole day. You can relive the entire day and the emotions that you felt. But here's another date. May 25th of 2018. Anybody remember that one? The day there was a school shooting at Noblesville West Middle School. I remember being on a field trip with my son and watching all the parents stare at their phones and people were crying and wondering what's going on and why is, why is this happening? And you probably remember wherever you were when you heard that announcement and, and that news and you remember the emotions that, that, that swept over you. And if you were like me, I couldn't think about what to do next because I was afraid of what might happen next. You can't even think straight. Some of us personally have experienced this in our own lives. You got a phone call. And you got some bad news. You got a bad report. You learn that someone close to you has died and you realize things are never gonna be the same. And we find ourselves in those moments asking questions like, what do we do now? Where do we, where do, how do we go on from here? Well, I think this is how Isaiah and the people of the Southern Kingdom felt. King Uzziah is dead. What do we do? There's fear, there's panic, there's doubt, there's uncertainty. But thankfully, in the midst of all of that, God showed up for Isaiah and he revealed something very powerful to him. Look at this in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year when it was really chaotic and scary, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphim. Now, seraphim. You don't find them much throughout Scripture. They're flaming angels, angels that are on fire, okay? Picture this scene. They're everywhere. They're flying around. It says they had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another. Better yet, they were worshiping. And they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His Glory. Now, some of you have probably read that passage like me before. You're familiar with it. And I have always assumed when I read this passage that Isaiah was seeing a vision of God. That's not exactly what he was seeing. God was showing him. He was revealing to him, let me show you the king that will come one day. He's going to be unlike any king you've ever seen. This king is celebrated by the angels. Now, that sounds familiar to the Christmas story, doesn't it? We were talking at our dinner table last night about our favorite part of the Christmas story, and one of our kids brought up the shepherds, and I thought of this passage. The shepherds were in their field, and what happened? The whole sky was filled with angels glorifying God. I think Isaiah was given a preview of that. They were, the angels were worshiping this king, and this king's glory is going to fill the entire earth, and his kingdom will never end, and he, he will never die. So in Isaiah 6, Isaiah receives a vision of this king on his throne. But if you go one chapter later into Isaiah 7, we get another familiar Christmas passage. And we see this king in his cradle. Listen to this verse from Isaiah 7:14, "Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign: the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel." So God says, let me tell you about this king. He's gonna be unlike any king you've ever seen. In fact, he is gonna arrive in a way that no one's ever arrived before. He will be born of a virgin. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Isaiah, and I'm just jotting down notes in my book, and I come across the part, born of a virgin, I think I set my pen down and think, okay, God, tell me more about that. How does that happen? What what does that mean? What's that gonna be like? And this is where our familiarity with the Christmas story to our advantage, right? We know how the story plays out. Because 700 years later, the gospel writer Matthew was writing to his readers about the events of the first Christmas, and this is what he says. You're probably familiar with this story, Matthew 1:18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they slept together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. There's a hint: God was up to something. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. He could have divorced her or he could have had her stoned and he thought, "Ah, I'm not that kind of guy. I just want to slip out of this quietly. Imagine the emotions that he would feel. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's our hint again. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Imagine being Joseph for a second. Okay, you get this news. You're engaged to be married, and you find out that your wife is somebody else's baby mama. That's a little discouraging. That's a hard pill to swallow. Who would blame Joseph for being mad, right? Nobody would blame him. But thankfully, God steps in and says, hey, I understand that you're upset, but I want you to know her story's legit. You can trust her and you can trust me. I want you to be faithful to your marriage vows as hard as it might be. And I want you to be good to her. And I want you to raise this child because this child's going to be special. He's going to forgive the people of their sins. And then Matthew seizes the moment with his readers and says, that's a hard story to believe, isn't it? Look at what Matthew says in verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet 700 years ago. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And then I like that Matthew puts his little parentheses in there and he says, by the way, that means God with us. God's gonna do something that only God can do. Now, the historian Luke records the same event in his gospel account, but from Mary's perspective. You're probably familiar with this part of the story. Luke 1, verse 30, an angel appears to Mary and says, Mary, don't be afraid. You've found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. That's great news. And and you're going to call him Jesus. Jesus. He'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Imagine being Mary. That sounds great. We're peasants. My son is going to be king in the line of David. I have one question, angel. I'm a virgin. How's that going to happen? Great question. Fair question, right? The angel in verse 35 says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. Now, I know that those stories are familiar, aren't they? I mean, it's, that is the Christmas story, but we can't just rush through those details every year. We've got to stop and think, what does all this mean? Think of the hints that God is giving us. I mean, God all but says, you're going to give birth to my son. Matthew and Luke, in their Gospels, they want their readers to know these crazy, impossible promises that God had made have come true. The king has been born to a virgin. In his name, his name is Jesus. Now remember, when Isaiah first gave this prophecy, 700 years before, everything was chaos in Israel. Everything was chaotic, and the people did not want to wait 700 years to receive a king. They wanted a king ASAP. Well, 700 years later, when Jesus was born, honestly, not a whole lot had changed. They were born, they didn't have to worry worry about the Assyrians anymore, but he was born under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And the southern kingdom wasn't a thing anymore either. They were just, the Israelites were squatters on that land. It was a very tough time, and people were still waiting for the king to arrive. But the gospel writers wanted their readers to take note that God had kept his promise in the way that he had revealed to Isaiah. And here's the thing, that was great news because all these prophecies in Isaiah, they're all tied together. And there was another prophecy that God gave Isaiah that would tell us more about this child, this king that was coming. And if you flip over a few pages to Isaiah chapter 9, this is where we find our passage for the day. And it's a perfect summation of the Christmas story. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says this, For unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and then I'm going to add verse 7 here, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And according to Isaiah, this new baby that God was sending was going to be someone special. This is like his job description. He's telling the people when he arrives, this is what he's going to do. And he begins by saying the government will be on his shoulders, meaning don't, don't fool yourselves. He will be a king. He will be a much greater king than Uzziah. And then God gives Isaiah four descriptors that tell us what this Messiah king will be like. Four names. Four names. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, meaning that he would rule in such a way that the people would gladly accept his teaching and willingly follow his leadership. He would also be called Mighty God. Now, Isaiah, this is a big deal. Isaiah isn't saying he will be God-like. Isaiah is saying, mark this down. He is going to be God in some way. Now, we know from 2,000 years after Jesus has lived on the earth, we know that this speaks to his divine nature, fully God and fully man. It speaks to his identity as the second member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. So wonderful counselor, mighty God. Here's one, Everlasting Father. That sounds like a weird one for Jesus, right? Everlasting Father, because we think of him as the Son of God. But this title, Everlasting Father, isn't his relation to people or even to God it's speaking about his relationship to time. Isaiah is letting us know that this Messiah king would be a fatherly type leader in the family of David and he would reign for eternity. He had a never-ending rule. And the last title is probably the one that we're most familiar with, this title of Prince of Peace and it means it meant that one day this person this king would usher in a time of lasting peace someday and in their gospel accounts of the christmas story Matthew and Luke they want their leaders to know or their readers to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies they've all found their fulfillment in Jesus and if you read through the gospels it doesn't take you long to realize Jesus is no ordinary man right I mean, he healed the sick on a regular basis. He, fell, he fed the masses on numerous occasions. He raised people from the dead. In fact, when he himself was killed, he came back from the dead. And all of these things pointed to him as God's promised Messiah and King. And that's great news that we celebrate on Christmas. It's the reason that we celebrate Christmas every year. We celebrate he's come once, and then we also look forward to the day that he will return again to fulfill all these promises. But here's here's one that I, here's a question that I have. Doesn't it seem like the peace promise, the peace part of that promise, the Prince of Peace thing, it's just not fulfilled yet. It seems like that part of the job description has kind of been shoved to the side. And I think we would all agree there is no shortage of things in this life right now that cause us anxiety and stress and they cause us to breathe a little heavy, right? They cause our heart rate to go up So where's the peace that God promised to send through Jesus? Well, I think this is a tension that Jesus himself faced and had to deal with during his life. Because even though he performed miracles that proved that he was the promised Messiah, the very people that he came to lead and to save completely rejected him. And they didn't just hand him over to death, They handed him over to be tortured in the worst way imaginable on the way to his death. And in John's gospel, in John chapter 19, John tells us how not only was Jesus tortured, but he was mocked. His kingship was mocked in a very public way. Look at these words in John 19, verses 2 and 3. The Roman soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Now I don't think they put it on there lightly. The thorns were there for a reason. They shoved it down hard. They clothed him in a purple robe representing royalty. And they went up to him again and again and they said, Hail the king of the Jews. And then they slapped him on the face. Now, Matthew's account is worse. Matthew's account says they put a stick in his hand to represent a scepter as a king. And then they took it and they just beat him over the head time and time again. His kingship was taunted. He was taunted. He was mocked. He was slapped. He was crucified. His kingship was made fun of. Where, where is the peace in any of that? Well, here's the thing. There's more to this verse than meets the eye. As it turns out, there's two different Greek words uh, that are translated as crown. The first one is the word deidema, and it means a king's crown. This is like a gold crown that you would, you've seen these before. You place it on somebody's head, right? That's one word, but that is not the word that the New Testament writers use. That's the word that the king, that that the Roman soldiers were making fun of. When they shoved that crown of thorns on there, they were mocking him being that kind of king. But the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, when they use this story, when they talk about this crown, they don't use the word deodema. They use a different word. They use the word Stephanos. And Stephanos is a word that's used to describe a crown of twisted laurels, and ivy. And in those days, that type of crown was given to the victors at the Olympic Games. Now think about that. A Stephanos crown is a victor's crown. And if you're old enough to remember when the Olympics were hosted in Athens, Greece in 2004, you'll probably remember pictures like this where Michael Phelps and others, they didn't just receive their their medals that year. They wore the Stefano's crown, they wore the victor's crown. And I want you to think of the importance of this image that we find in John 19. This is a victor's crown. While the soldiers intended to mock Jesus' kingship with the crown of thorns, his closest followers, when they went back to write their version of the story, they knew that that crown of thorns represented Jesus' victory over the sin and death and chaos in our lives. In other words, the very symbol that was meant to mock his kingship was actually used to celebrate his victory as our king on our behalf. And I don't know about you, I, I personally, I find that detail fascinating. It's a small detail, but it's a big detail. But it still begs the question, where's the peace? Where's the peace in any of that? And here's the reality, that, that ancient promise that God gave to Isaiah... 2,700 years ago. We're still waiting for it to be fully realized. And in some ways, in one sense, we can experience the peace of Jesus when we surrender our lives to him. We can experience it now, but we're waiting for a day when he will return and he will fully be that king. His peace will come with him, and he will crush the chaos and the anxiety in in our world. But here's the question. What do we do while we wait? What do we do in the meantime? There are tons of stressors. Where are we going to find our peace? I think this is the tension that Isaiah and the Israelites felt when King Uzziah died. Everything was falling apart. There was so much uncertainty and fear and doubt and anxiety. But... There's something that's found in one of these prophecies in Isaiah that I think can help us refocus our eyes and show us where to find our peace. If you look back at Isaiah chapter 6, remember, King Uzziah died, everything's fallen apart, and look what, what Isaiah writes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, when you read it in Scripture, this is really fascinating. I saw the Lord, comma, It's like the end of the thought. Now, he goes on to explain how great the Lord is, but Isaiah says, in the year that all hell was breaking loose, in the year that it was awful, God allowed me to see the Lord. And apparently it gave him hope because he he jotted down and he shared it with the people. God gave Isaiah a glimpse of the king that was gonna come one day and the king that would come again for us to bring us everlasting peace. And so maybe the greatest gift... Maybe the greatest gift that any of us could ask for or receive this year in the midst of our chaos would be for God to refocus our eyes and to show us the Lord, Jesus, in the midst of all of our circumstances, all of the uncertainty, all the anxiety, all the doubt and all the fear. What if we began to pray a simple prayer that went something like this, Father, would you give me eyes? to see Jesus in the midst of my circumstances. Help me to see Jesus as the king that has come to save us and help me experience the peace that he promises to bring me today in the midst of my struggles. Because here's the reality. The hope of that peace is the reason for our faith. The hope of that peace is the reason we celebrate Christmas in the first place. We've been celebrating Jesus' birth for 2,000 years because we believe there is still more yet to come. And I want you to take a moment and think about how that hope of the coming peace fueled the faith of the people that lived out the first Christmas. Think of the faith it would take to be Isaiah, to write down these crazy visions and promises that God has given you. They seem impossible, but you not only write them down, you share them with people and say, hey, I've got some good news for you. That takes faith. Think of the faith it would take to be Mary to trust God at his word, knowing that you could be stoned to death, knowing the types of things people are going to say about you because nobody's going to believe that story and the things they would say about your son. That would take faith, to to be faithful, to remain faithful to God. Think of the faith it took Joseph to trust the angel's words, to get over all the emotions that he may have felt about that not being his son, and the faith to do whatever God told him to do next. And I'm going to guess that all of them were a little confused. They were scared, they were nervous, they were anxious, but it was their faith in God's promises for the future that guided them through the anxiety and the tension and the struggle of their days. So here's my question for us. We're familiar with their story, but what does their story have to do with our story? How can we live out a faith like that where we can continue to pursue this peace that Jesus promises. Many of you are aware of this. I've shared it with you. You've heard me talk about it, but uh, my mom passed away unexpectedly earlier this year. And we're, if you've lost a loved one, you know how hard the firsts are, right? We're going through all of our firsts, first birthdays without her being there. First Thanksgiving without mom being around. My poor dad is you know, he's, he's doing okay, but he's doing Christmas all by himself. He doesn't have his partner there to help him with all these things. It's just, it's been really, really, really hard. And we've had a lot of people this year say, hey, how are you doing? They check in on us often. And I had a really good cry the day of her funeral. And I really haven't cried much since. And it bothers me. I don't know, like, I get to the point where I want to cry, and then everything just shuts down. And so when people ask me, how are you doing? I just started saying this. I think I'm doing okay, but I'm a little numb. I don't know how to feel. And my siblings, we've talked about this, we are like, yeah, numbness, that kind of describes what we feel. But I started telling that to a lot of people, and all of a sudden, I felt like God stopped me and said, no, it's not numbness. Numbness is dark. There's no hope in numbness. And, and I feel like one of the things that God has shared with me recently is what you feel isn't numbness. You're actually experiencing my peace in the midst of your loss? And I thought, I think you're right. Because we had to go, I've had to retrace our steps. We had to make really hard decisions about whether to keep her alive or not. I remember watching my dad live out his faith and pray, God, we want her to live, but we also want your will to be done. And it was my dad's faith that fueled our faith. And as we relive these moments, we remember, no, 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 no. He has shown up. I I could give you moment after moment, example after example, where God says, no, I'm here with you. So I tell you, I think our family has in some way experienced the peace of God that passes understanding. Now, we are not perfect. We still struggle. Don't think more of our family than you should. I'm just telling you, with this one instance, what we would say is numbness seems to be his peace resting on us because we have hope. We have hope that her faith was in Jesus. And even though she's died and not here with us now, we believe she's experiencing something better with him now. And we're the ones missing out, not her. We have hope that one day we'll be reunited. We have hope that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he's done. And it's given us a weird sense of peace. Now, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is that's wrecking your life. I don't know if it's anxiety or chaos or the schedule of things. I I don't know what it is. I wish I could say one thing and it would just take it all away or you could in some way experience that peace. But I want you to know, as crazy as it sounds, I really do believe, I believe, I've experienced that the peace that Jesus offered is available to us right now. It's available to us today. It's available to us in the uncertainty of tomorrow. And one day, it'll be available forever. But right now, he he, he wants us to know, you can experience this. Just trust me. Keep your eyes on me. Bring me into the circumstance. Don't live life without me. I am the Prince of Peace. He is our promised king that wore a crown of victory on his head while he carried the cross of sin and shame on his back. Our sin and shame. He's the king that rolled away the stone when he was placed into his tomb. He rolled away the stone to come out to show us, no, I am exactly who God says that I am. And he promises in his word to never leave us or to never forsake us. He is the Prince of Peace, and he wants us to experience that peace no matter what we face. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your words, these ancient promises that we're so familiar with. And we know, they, they tell us about the Christmas story before Christmas ever came to be a thing. The gospel writers tell us about the Christmas story as it was happening. I am so thankful for these words and how these stories, we read the Bible like it's a book, it's not a book, it's your letters to us, piecing together history and, and piecing together the faithfulness of your promises towards us. Thank you, would you forgive us for, for becoming so familiar with it That we forget your faithfulness in the midst of it. We become so familiar with it that we forget what it is that we celebrate. Jesus, we celebrate your birth, God in the flesh. You stepped into our world, you stepped into skin on our behalf. Thank you. Would you bring these familiar passages, this familiar story to light for us in a whole new way so that as we prepare for Christmas in 10 days, and there's everything in the world that is pulling at us and pulling us down and distracting us away, would you help us to refocus our eyes on you? Would you help us, just like Uzziah said, in the year that everything was happening, we could say, we saw the Lord. We saw him show up in ways we never anticipated. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Holy Spirit, would you give us a faith that would help us to be faithful back to you,